regular week, oops, got to turn my, sorry about that. In my regular work at Detroit Baptist Seminary, I have for actually 20 years now, taught a class that's called Theological Research Method. I know it sounds terribly dull, uh, but it actually has some interesting moments. But one of the goals of this first semester class is to help our students take another step in doing biblical theological research. That is, research that has as its unalterably authoritative foundation the fact that God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has revealed himself inherently in these Protestant scriptures. Okay? What I mean by that is even though we live and work and, and uh, do, our, do our business in a great marketplace of ideas born out of all kinds of disciplines, science, technology, history, sociology, and all sorts of independent reach, uh, research, there is for the believer one source of authority that trumps them all. Now, nothing eclipses the Bible. If history seems to tell us one thing and the Bible another, then the Bible's right. If science seems to tell us one thing then, and the Bible says something else, then the Bible's right. Or if a doctor or a teacher or a psychologist or a government official or even the U.S. Constitution tells us something, and the scriptures say something else, then those are wrong and the Bible's right. It's a pretty simple principle, but it's very hard to implement sometimes, as we all know. And one of the exercises I implement every year in that class to help my students to think biblically is to split the class evenly and then instruct one half of the class to build an argument against human slavery, and the other half has to construct an, ar uh, an argument uh, for human slavery. I give them half an hour to brainstorm, come up with a thesis, arguments, and then we uh, get back together and we cross-examine and cross-evaluate each other. And it's, a, it's a good exercise. Usually the guys selected to make the case against slavery imagine that they have the easier task. Uh, after all, you know, there's no theme that's been rehearsed more relentlessly and passionately in the last several decades in the American school system than the evils of slavery, okay? Um, it's an evil of unparalleled scope, contributing factor in the American system, if not the root cause of every, almost every societal evil that exists today, you know, if you, if you, if, uh, if you listen to the pundits speak. So out come a battery of arguments from American history, jurisprudence, sociology, economics, democracy, and just about every ethical argument that's ever been mustered. They just, they just pile in. The other side has never heard an argument for slavery, for the most part, and so they do a little Google search and there's just not much there. And so they do what they have to do, what, they, what the other side should have done, is that they immediately go to their, their Lagos Bible software and look it up in the Bible. <laughs> they look up slavery. They, they find out all the references to slavery in the Bible, and, and lo and behold, they, they find that there's a lot of information about slavery in the Bible that perhaps, perhaps surprises us. We're going to come across a little bit of that tonight in the book of Titus. They find that some kinds of slavery are certainly condemned in Scripture roundly, notably those kind that involve a racial element, 
or uh, when innocents are kidnapped and sold or when abuse occurs. These are all roundly condemned in Scripture. But then there's other forms of slavery and all other instances of slavery that are actually uh, treated uh, with toleration, regulation, commendation, and even celebration at times. In fact, we're going to see that in the book that we're going to start with tonight. We're going to start looking at the book of Titus, where Paul is actually excited about being a slave of God. That's the first that's the first label he uses to describe himself. I'm a slave and an apostle. <laughs> you know, we, we would certainly, even if we were going to include slave, we would put apostle first. <laughs> but, but no, it's, I'm a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And, and, uh, and the reason I do this exercise every year is not to turn my, slave, my students into advocates for slavery. Please know that DBTS is on the right side of history on this, on this, this issue here but rather to teach aspiring ministers to consult the best source first, which is the Bible, and to evaluate all other sources for their biblical warrant, for their biblical credibility, to qualify their arguments and to avoid logical fallacies, even in something that seems like a plain topic to discuss. But of course, the specific reason I use this illustration to start tonight's sermon is because the whole message of the book of Titus will make very little sense if we think only ill thoughts about the idea of slavery. Paul begins the book of Titus with a forthright admission, a claim, even a boast, that he is a slave of God. Now, perhaps because we've seen that kind of language over the years, we, we're familiar with the servant or the bondservant or the slave language, depending on which translation you happen to use, that we've become sort of, you know, a little bit cold to the fact that this language is as unusual then, was as unusual then as it is today. In the Roman world, nearly half of the population were slaves, and the very first thing that every one of those slaves wanted to do in order to gain some upward mobility was to get out of slavery. That, I mean, that's, that's, that's the first thing they, they wanted to do. Nobody wanted to be a slave. Now, there were lots of slaves. People, you know, you know, came to grips with the fact that they were slaves, but nobody just delighted in the fact that they were slaves. But, but Paul, on the other hand, was was elevating this de de designation slave, even, even taking the unusual step, like I said, of actually promoting it ahead of the label apostle with which he typically begins his letters. Seems like a signal point of emphasis for Paul, and we're going to find as we work our way through this book that the idea of slavery and submission and subordination are quite frequent in this book. Okay. This book, this book of Titus, and the reason I picked it is because, well, actually the reason I picked it was because of verse 5. Um, it, it actually uh, tells us in, in this verse 5 uh, that uh, Titus had been left in Crete in order to put in order what remains and appoint elders in every city that I directed you. Okay, and so, so, his, so these are Paul's instructions to Titus to go into a church without a pastor and, and help them along the way as they look for a pastor. So I, 
it, that's what attracted me to this book when I, when I, when I, when I, when I was coming here to, to preach because I, I, not that I'm quite in the same position as Titus, but I, you know, I, I, I feel the weight of some similarities here. Uh, but, but it's interesting, as you, as you work your way through this, this idea of subordination and submission mutually within the congregation is something of a great import to Paul. Uh, in verse chapter 1, verse 6, children are called upon to be subordinate to their parents and to their rules. In verses 9 and 10, pastors are asked those to, to rebuke those who are insubordinate, who in the words of one major commentator are unwilling to submit to God and to his law. In chapter 2, Paul actually uses the word submit actually three times. First, women are to submit to their husbands. Slaves are to submit to their masters. And finally, all people are to submit to their governing authorities. Everybody has to submit to somebody. Added to these are multiple calls for uh, it, it, habits of discipline and restraint for pastors, for older men, for younger men. There, it, it, there's, there's a lot in this book about you know, suppressing your own desires, your own interests, your own concerns in the interests of those of others. Okay? That's a major theme that we're going to see as we, as we work our way through this book of Titus. And perhaps you're at this point saying, you're in great dismay, what a dismal thought, being, being a Christian is like being a slave. Well, get, just wait, it actually gets worse. As we noted up front in the message, some kinds of slavery are good. And some kinds of slavery are bad. And Paul actually talks about bad kinds of slavery as well. Perhaps not the ones we're thinking of right now. But he actually says in chapter 2, verse 3, that we should avoid slavery to wine. In chapter 3, he talks us to, uh, about us breaking free from our slavery to passions and to pleasure. And just to make sure we all feel a little twinge of guilt here, Paul even goes after our slavery to laziness and gluttony in chapter 1, verse 12. So he talks about slavery to these things like laziness and wine and gluttony and, 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 and all of these things that uh, we, we tend to think, these, are, these aren't, that's not slavery. <laughs> that's liberty, right? <laughs> we get to do those things. But, but with Paul, his concern, he, he, he's not one to say that, uh, to, 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 to pit slavery and liberty against one another. Okay? We are slaves. He, he puts it plainly in English. We're all slaves of something. Okay? The question is, what are you a slave to? Are you a slave to your passions? Are you a slave to your, to, to your laziness? Are you a slave to, to, uh, to, to, these, to these wine even? You know, are, are these the things you're enslaved to? Are, or are you enslaved to one another in Christ? Are you enslaved to your parents, to those who are an authority to you? Are you enslaved to each other within the context of the community of Christ? And Paul does not have any problem talking about slavery as a good thing and at times a bad thing, but often reverses what we tend to think is good and bad slavery. This is really not the message I was expecting to see when I opened the book of Titus when I selected it to, to bring these, this series of message here. But the more I've studied, the more I've come to embrace its message, and I've seen its value for the Christian church. Okay? And so, uh, 
so as, you, so as, you, so as we work our way through this, hopefully we'll, we'll catch here some of Paul's burden here uh, that we are uh, to be slaves of one another. So what does it mean to be a slave? Well, if we break open standard Greek dictionary, Bauer, Art, and Gingrich, if you happen to want to look it up sometime, uh, we can discover a very plain meaning. A slave is a person, and I'm quoting here, who is singularly committed to the will of another, one who is duty-bound at all times to a master to whom total allegiance has been pledged. I'll read that again because it's a good definition. It's a person, a slave is a person who is singularly committed to the will of another, someone who is duty-bound at all times to a master to whom total allegiance is pledged. Paul seems to expand a little bit on that more basic definition in his letters at two critical points. He does not restrict slavery to bondage to another because he actually suggests that we can be slaves to ourselves, and that's actually the worst kind of slavery. So we can be slaves to our own passions, our own lusts, our own values, and that's actually the worst kind of slavery at all. He also in allows for slavery to impersonal masters, too, so not just slavery to other persons who happen to own us, but actually to, uh, to, to impersonal things. We can be slaves to sin. We can be slaves to a law. We can be slaves to an addiction. We can be slaves of death. All of these are themes that we find in Paul. So with this expanded definition then, Paul seems to be able to say, and does throughout his letters, that we're all slaves to something with none of us accepted. For Paul, there are basically two forms of slavery. We're either slaves to the flesh, and thus slaves to the law of sin and death, or we are slaves to God, one or the other. Those are the two basic binary options. You have to be one or the other. And for, the, and for Paul, the essence of the Christian walk is resisting and mortifying the one master, putting to death the flesh, and because it continues to grasp for our attention. This is, the, you know, really, if you think back of Romans 6 and 7, where Paul has this battle with himself. I wish I could do this, but I never do. And he goes back and forth, and you're sort of trying to follow it, and it's very difficult. Your, your, your mind is, wait, what was he saying? And I think that's exactly the point. That's exactly what he wants you to do, because that's what it feels like sometimes when you're, when you're fighting with the flesh, which wants you to do something, and you as a believer say, I don't want to do that, but yes, I do want to do that. And it happens all the time to us. And so we, we find that that's the, ba that's the one kind of slavery that we're constantly battling against. But where Paul's concept of slavery differs most emphatically from the prevailing concept of slavery in our day, however, is what makes one kind of slavery good and another kind of slavery bad. For the average American, slavery is bad because it's involuntary. A person is forced to do what he doesn't want to do. And that's the great evil of slavery in the American context, right? Africans were enslaved to their white masters against their will. And that's the worst possible form of slavery. But for Paul, this is not the worst form of slavery. The worst form of slavery for him is the kind of slavery where we actually get to choose our master, but we choose the wrong one. That's the worst kind of slavery. When we choose the wrong master. We live in a society that says with William Shakespeare, this above all, to thine own self, be true. Don't be a hypocrite. Be you. Do what you do, to 
quote a more recent uh, philosopher of a sort. Perhaps none of you know him. Okay. <laughs> this, is, this is supposed to be the epitome of liberty, to be ourselves. And somehow, sometimes we impose this concept on Christian liberty. Be yourself. But there could be never, nothing else that Paul would say is, 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 is more wrong than that. Don't be yourself because yourself is messed up. Don't be yourself. You know, I, that was a hilarious illustration this morning that you, you, that you brought up. The, uh, the folks who were acting uh, as, you know, in the in psych ward. Was that, was that you or the, the fellow on the, uh, on the screen there talking about people who were in a, a psych, psych ward at a hospital who were being true to themselves, but they were, they were really thinking some strange thoughts about themselves. Well, the fact is, we all think highly, more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. We, 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 we should not be true to ourselves. That's, that's the goal of sanctification, to stop, stop being true to ourselves and true to what God expects of us. And so Paul announces to us that we're all slaves of something, and that our goal in life is not to choose the master that we want to serve, but to want the master that we should have. Okay? And so that's how he starts here in this, this book. And so this basic premise in place, let's take a look at the major players in the letter. Now I'm going to actually read the first five verses. That's all the proverb we're going to get uh, tonight. But let's look at the first five verses of this letter. Paul, a bondservant of God, a slave of God, and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word, the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God our Father, and Christ Jesus, our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains and to appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Okay, so see here an, an, an opening foray here of what he plans to do with this letter is to prepare not only Titus, but also the whole church to whom this letter would have been read, to prepare for the leadership that they're going to select to lead them, okay? And so if, 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 if I can say, there, if, there's, if there's any more uh, appropriate text uh, for a church that is about to appoint a new leader, perhaps it's this one. And perhaps, yeah, perhaps I'm, I'm beating something to death. I don't, I don't know what uh, uh, Rob Pfeiffer preached about at least in its totality, what he preached. So perhaps he's already gone through some of these. Uh, but if not, and even if he has, I think we, we, we do, do well to get some reminders here as to what we're to be looking for when we are appointing new leaders in this particular city. But let's back up here and talk about some of the participants in this story, uh, this, this, this letter here. Uh, we're going to look at Paul, we're going to look at his immediate recipient, Titus, and then also the churches to which they are collectively attempting to minister. Paul, of course, we all know well. He's the apostle, untimely born, right? He's an apostle that wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ 
throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, and yet he was promoted to this role, this office of apostle. So he received his apostleship after the earthly ministry of Christ, but still apparently met all the requisite qualifications of God to be an apostle. He was hand-selected, he was personally called by Jesus, he was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ, at least on the Damascus Road and perhaps beyond that. Peter had been the lead figure in the early church and had progressively opened the doors of Christian expansion from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria, but then Paul sort of takes over, and right about the midpoint of the book of Acts, and he actually takes the gospel further to the ends of the earth. So we find here uh, that he's actually uh, completing uh, he, the, the leadership, take, taking the lead in completing uh, the, uh, the great commission of his day. And so he goes further here uh, to be in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, southeastern Europe, uh, the modern Balkan states, Greece, and uh, briefly all the way out into Italy. So that's, that's, his, that's the limits of where Paul is going. But we actually find here that Paul has an unexpected opportunity to visit the island of Crete. This was not part of his plan. He was brought there under duress because he was incarcerated. He was arrested and was on the way to Rome. He had appealed to Rome. They had granted his appeal, and so he's being transported to Rome, and the ship stops at Crete, and apparently there, uh, there's a shipwreck. You're familiar with the shipwreck in Acts chapter 27, and because of that, he actually winters there. So he spends several months in Crete because the, uh, the, the waters of the Mediterranean are too treacherous to cross. And so he has this window of opportunity here in Crete to be a minister of Jesus Christ there. And it appears that on this occasion, he actually uh, has some converts. Perhaps Titus is one of them. We're going to find that Titus, he calls his son in the faith. So apparently he leads Titus to the Lord, um, perhaps in this place. Uh, but he, he, there's a group of people that is, are gathered together, but he has to leave before he can appoint an elder. And that's what he says here. I, I left you in order to to finish what was undone. Okay, remember, he's, he's imprisoned. Uh, he is, he's incarcerated, and when they say, okay, it's time to get on the ship and go to Rome, he gets in the ship and goes to Rome. He doesn't have the opportunity to complete his work there. And so we, so we find here uh, that that's, uh, where, uh, uh, that's where Paul's historical presence was. Okay? And it seems here that this is one of Paul's very latest letters that it's one of two occasions, the other being Timothy, where he's sort of handing the baton off to a young guy. Uh, first to Timothy, then to Titus. These are some of the very last letters that, Titus, uh, that, that Paul writes uh, before he is, he is put to death. And so he's, he's appointing these two men, Titus and Timothy, uh, to, to continue the work that he has done. Not a lot is done about no, known about Titus. In fact, he's never mentioned in the book of Acts, which is really strange to us because we know from several other books of Paul's that Titus was a companion of Paul during many of his journeys and a major player, but he's never mentioned in the book of Acts. It's rather a strange thing. There's a lot of debate as to why that might be. Uh, 
perhaps one of the leading suggestions is that Titus was actually Luke's brother, and Luke didn't want to make the book of Acts about his family, and so he leaves off references to himself and references to his brother. It's, it's hard to know. We, we don't know why he's not mentioned, but we do know uh, from this statement here in chapter 1, verse 4, that Titus is Paul's true child in a common faith. So Titus is a personal convert of Paul, uh, likely, likely during his, his earthly ministry, early ministry at Antioch, but perhaps a little later. And the reason we draw this conclusion is because in Galatians 2, Paul actually reveals that when he travels from Antioch down to the Jerusalem council that takes place in Acts 15, that he brings Titus along as a test case. We don't, we don't find this in Acts 15. We find this in Galatians, who, where, where Paul gives his account of what happens in Acts 15. And, of course, they're trying to decide at that point who needed to be circumcised in the early church. You know, the Jews were saying you have to be circumcised in order to be part of the church. The Gentiles were saying, hey, we, we don't have that custom. We don't do that. And so what Paul does is he brings Titus along with him as sort of a test case. Remember that this, uh, this, uh, this, the, the Jewish court was very reluctant to accept Gentile converts as is, and they were asking them to, uh, to, uh, to become circumcised in order to be part of the new community. The bulk of our knowledge about Titus then comes from Paul and especially his second letter to the Corinthians. So we find something about him in Galatians, something about here in, here in the book of Titus. But the bulk of the information we find in the book of Corinthians. Titus actually is mentioned nine times there. He functions as Paul's courier for the Corinthian correspondence. We know that of, of at least two letters that were uh, sent to Corinth, and we have them recorded in our Christian scriptures, but as you read the books of Corinth, there are references to at least two other letters. So there's actually four different letters to the Corinthians that, that, that are a back and forth exchange, and some of it was a bit testy, right? And Titus, we find, is actually the courier. He's the one who goes back and forth, and so he has to act, has to act as a liaison, becomes rather, you know, you know, skilled at, you know, you know, working with people, uh, because uh, these are these are people who had a, had something of a testy relationship uh, with Paul, and so Titus apparently does a very good job at this, um, and uh, is commended multiple times there in the uh, in the Corinthian correspondence. So what do we know here then about, uh, about the church in Crete? Well, we know that uh, Titus is so highly regarded by Paul that he's the one whom Paul appoints to be his representative in Crete. So what do we know about Crete? Well, if we know anything about Crete, we know that it was a pretty bad place. In fact, Corinthians, you know, we, we tend to think of the Corinthian church as the bad church. If, 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 if there's any church that was bad, it's probably the Cretan church. Uh, the, the, the Cretans are, are we're, going to, we're going to actually see this here, uh, that they're, 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 they're thought of as some of the worst. You know, verse 12 here, one of your own prophets says that Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> okay, So uh, we, we find that these, these people are, are a bad lot. Uh, but we find here that there is... A gospel ministry that takes place 
even when, uh, when, when Paul is a prisoner. We also discover from our letter that Paul's church planning efforts had been complete. Uh, Paul, uh, he had not been able to uh, establish any elders and pastors for this tiny band of new Christians. Christians, again, we don't know for sure why that is, probably because he was compelled to leave. Uh, but, uh, so, but Paul uh, finds it necessary to leave Titus behind. But the second unfinished task that Paul leaves to, Timothy, to, to Titus excuse me, must be constructed from the rest of the letter. And what we find here is that Titus is left in a church that resembles its pagan culture a little too much. You know, uh, first chapter here. They're famous in the classical world for their dishonesty. They're renowned liars. Um, and they also had a reputation for la laziness and gluttony that was born from great wealth, uh, greater than, than most, uh, most of the, uh, the, 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 the situations that you find in the ancient world. Uh, they were also then a people who lived for themselves, or if I can come back to our introduction. They were people who were falling back in the carnal pattern of living as slaves to themselves rather than as slaves to God and slaves of the Christian community, slaves to the church. And so it's in light of all this introduction that Paul's comments in verses 1 to 3 finally make complete sense to us. Paul is a slave of God and an apostolic representative of Jesus Christ with specific ends in view. Why am I a slave? Why have I left you behind? And he, he, gives, uh, he gives to us the tasks of the slave. We're slaves, right? We're all slaves of something. We're supposed to be slaves of each other and slaves of God. So what are we supposed, to, what, was, what is the purpose of our slavery? Well, he gives it here. You know, he says here, I, Paul, I am a slave of God and an apostle for the following reasons, for the following purposes. Firstly, here, for the faith of those chosen of God. So, Paul is a slave of God and a slave of the church because he is concerned about the faith of God's elect. He lives for the multiplication of the Christian community. He shares his faith. As Paul puts it in Romans 1.5, he lives to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. That's why he was a slave in order to bring the gospel to people and to build the church. There's something wrong. There's something wrong with a church that does not yearn to see it grow by multiplication. Now, I understand, of course, that we, we, we want to see all kinds of growth in the church. We want to see each individual within the church uh, cultivated and to grow in spiritual maturity. But there's something wrong with the church that is satisfied only with that. Okay. We ought to also yearn for the multiplication of God worshipers. Okay. And Paul is concerned. He is a slave for the purpose, for the faith of those chosen of God. He has a relentless concern for evangelism and Christian witness. That's why he is why he exists. Second, we find here, he is a slave of God, secondly, for the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. So secondly, here, a slave of God is concerned about the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. 
the interest here is not merely in accumulating knowledge, the truths of the scriptures, of course we have to do that, but with an end in view. But, so it's a practical articulation of the truth with the character of the hearers so that godly character results. This is a major concern of the letter to Titus. Twice in the last chapter, Paul implores his readers to be marked by a devotion to good works. But it starts way back here in verse 1 with a commitment to godly character. As Paul says in Colossians 1, 9, and 10, we need to be filled with the knowledge of God in order to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. And as we're going to discover as we work our way into chapter 2, we fulfill all of our respective roles within the world, but not as the world, in a way better than and different from the world, so as to adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ. We become slaves even when we don't technically need to, in order that the church might multiply and so that godliness would proliferate. So in short, Paul says we are to be slaves of God because we are infatuated with the Great Commission. What is the Great Commission? Go, evangelize, and teach them to observe God's commands. Okay? That's what he's a slave to. He's a slave to the mission of God, the mission of the church. He is a slave to the church because he is a slave to God. And that is Paul's introduction here. So a slave of God engages in evangelism, and relentlessly cultivates godliness. But thirdly here, in verses 2 and 3, and with this we'll come to a, to a close because we've pretty much covered 4 and 5 already, we're slaves because we rest on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, long ago, and has appointed, and it, at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted me by the command of God our Savior. So we find here that a slave of God, thirdly, must be completely and absolutely convinced that this life is not all there is. And that's just really, really hard for us who live in a world of sights and sounds that are detached from the life that is to come. It's, it's something that every single one of us struggles with. We, we, we tend to think that this world is, is all there is. As much as we know better, we tend to think that this world is all that there is. We, we become con consumed with innocuous things, right? Like paying the bills and saving for retirement and making new friends and keeping friends and getting a night out or a week away or getting in a day of golfing or hunting or fishing or shopping or whatever it is that you happen to enjoy doing in this world. Improving the home that we have here on earth rather than the home that is waiting for us. These things collectively begin to consume us because we stop believing or, we, or the, the belief that, that there is a world to come becomes cloudy and occluded and we forget that there is a home yet to come. And if we don't really believe that there's another, another sphere of existence beyond this one, we'll never be slaves of God. 
And so this is the third concern that Paul has as a slave of God. Okay? He is a slave so that the church might multiply in number, might in, increase in godliness, and to become convinced, absolutely convinced, that there is a world beyond this one for which we labor now. Story aired on Fox News a couple of years ago now of a woman in Texas named Julie Prater. Some of you might remember this. She was diagnosed with brain cancer and she was eight weeks pregnant. And the choice she faced was a grim one. She could either save her life with medications that would kill the baby or she could sacrifice her life in order to save the baby. That's the stuff of every ethical dilemma that's in every book, but you never think you're going to actually encounter the situation until it actually happens. So what did Julie Prater do? Well, she didn't think twice. She saved the baby. Or if I may, she became a slave. She enslaved herself to the will of another, duty-bound at all times to another, an infant, to whom she had pledged total allegiance. And the world applauded. And they should. But here's the deal. We've got the same choice ahead of us, right? But the stakes are way, way bigger. It goes like this. Whoever would save his life must lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. Isn't that exactly the choice that Julie Prater had when she was choosing whether it was going to be her life or her child's? Which one is she most concerned with? My life now or that child's life who's going to, who is going to succeed me? And her choice was easy. But we've got the same choice, right? You can, get, you can live your life for yourself now knowing that you'll lose it. Or you can sacrifice your life now with the promise that you'll receive it. That's the choice. That's in a nutshell what Christ's appeal is for us when he asks us to become slaves of God. In many ways, this choice is easier than Julie Prater's choice because everyone's a winner, right? God is glorified, the church grows, and while I lose my life now, I act actually am rewarded with a better one later. And so the burning question with which we are all left as we, as, we, as we wrap up this introduction here to the book of Titus is this. Will I remain a slave to myself, walk by sight, concentrate on this life, or will I defer to the next life, walk by faith, and become a slave of God? And that's the burden of the letter to Titus. And so he implores us, in effect, to make the correct choice. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your grace to us. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifices you have made on our behalf, uh, becoming effectively a slave of all of us in order to bring us to God. And Lord, I ask as we ponder that fact, and we consider the fact that, in fact, uh, our, our lives are not our own, uh, that we would, in fact, willingly and voluntarily give our lives in service to Jesus Christ, knowing that the church will profit, that you will be pleased, and that we will be greatly rewarded in the next life. We pray for this in your name. Amen.